All right. Um, we are um, ready to go. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12. Um, this will be the last Sunday that we look at a specific idol. Um, if you haven't been with us, we're going through a sermon series called Desires of the Heart, looking at uh, these modern-day idols that so easily entangle us and capture our hearts, things that potentially are really good things that God has provided for us that, if not careful, become ultimate things, things we go to for satisfaction and peace and healing and comfort and joy. And the Bible says that anything that becomes um, a source for us of, of, of joy and satisfaction other than God has become an idol. And so through the series, we've been walking through um, how good things can become idols, like relationships or um, um, or. Uh, comfort or, uh, right, this good thing that God gives to us is comfort, but even that can become an idol. And so these good things that God blesses us with that he intends to use as allowed to, allow to become reminders to us of his goodness, if we go to these things for satisfaction, we go to these things for joy, they become idols. And so today we're going to look at possessions. And, um, and so let me just give you a little overview where we're going. So next week we're going to come back. This is the last idol we're going to look at. Whew, we're almost done. Um, next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to ask the question, what now? Okay? So what now? Now that I've begun to identify some idols in my life, what do I do with that? How do I, how do I remove these things from my life? Or better yet, how do I position my life for God to remove these things from my life? And so next Sunday, we're going to come back and answer that question, what now? And then the following Sunday, I'm super excited about it. It's going to be a Sunday of testimonies and baptisms. On the 19th, um, we had already planned from the beginning to have a Sunday of testimonies. And this is where you get to share how God's worked in your life through the sermon series, um, maybe something he's revealed to you or taught you or challenged in there he's challenged you in. And so on the 19th, we're going to do that. Every service, three services, testimonies, and then baptisms, which we didn't initially plan. That's just kind of happened over the last couple of weeks. Several people have, have kind of come to staff and said, I think it's time for me to be baptized. And so we're going to have baptisms um, on that day, and we're going to have testimonies on that day. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you're out there and you've got a story, especially if you're uncomfortable sharing it in front of people, I, I want you to consider sharing it on the 19th. And, and the way you can let me know is if you'll email, send an email to info at srchurch.tv. It's the most common email address we have here, info at, and just say, hey, I want to share on Sunday about um, what God's doing in my life. Just something simple like that. I'll get in touch with you. I'll share with you how it's going to work. We're going to use interview questions so you don't have to memorize a speech. We're going to make it super user-friendly. But I want, I want to hear from you. I want to hear about how God has challenged you uh, through this series and how he's worked in your life. And so please send in an email. Let us know that you want to share on the 19th. All right. So today we're looking at the idol of possessions. I, I saved uh, this one for the very end. I think for a lot of us, too, when we think about modern-day American idols, possessions probably in our minds tends to rise to the top, right, as, as a modern-day struggle with possessions. And so we're going we're gonna to look at possessions today. In Luke chapter 12, let me just lay some context. Uh, the ver first verse tells us that a, a crowd of people was gathering around Jesus, like in the thousands, so many people that they were beginning to kind of trample on one another. And so Jesus begins to teach um, publicly about what it means to follow him. And he's encouraging the people not to have fear and not to worry about what you're going to say, but the Holy Spirit will provide for you the words that you need. And then there's this gentleman who interrupts Jesus' speech with a question. So we're going to pick this up now in verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13. 
someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this was way out of left field. Jesus wasn't even talking about money or inheritance or possessions, but there's always that guy in the crowd, right, who's not listening to the teacher who has his own agenda, and that's what happens here. So Jesus is teaching about don't be fearful, don't worry about what you're going to say, you're going to go out and represent the kingdom, and then, then the gentleman says, hey, I've got a question, Jesus. Yes, sir, what's your question? Will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Now, just way out of left field, right? And so I tried to imagine myself in this position, what I, how I would respond, probably with some sarcasm or, or a, hey, no, appreciate your question, but we'll get to that later. Maybe we could have coffee later this week, and then I'd get back to my agenda. But Jesus doesn't. He stops, and first of all, he addresses the man. Verse 14, he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? So, Jesus is going to address the man, first of all, and he's going to say, essentially, that's not why I'm here. You may have misunderstood my purpose for being here. That's not why I'm here. But rather than going back to his sermon and picking up where he left off, Jesus is going to now address the crowd in verse 15. And he said to them. So you see the difference? The man raised his hand. I got a question. Needs you to tell my brother what to do. Tell him to divide his inheritance with me. Jesus addresses the man, that's not why I'm here, and then now he takes this opportunity to address the crowd, and he says to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so Jesus is going to take this opportunity to, to address the crowd and, and draw up some things that they weren't aware of. The first thing he says is what? Take care. This is a really important word, okay? In the Greek language, it's the idea of, of seeing something and then coming to an understanding. Or the, the, the idea of, of your mind finally getting something or coming to an understanding through experience. Essentially, the way you could translate that is Jesus is saying, wake up. Come to see something that you didn't formerly see. Now, th this is important for us today because there's a good chance, there's a good chance if I ask for a show of hands, who came today ready to get rid of your idol of possessions, right? Nobody's going to raise their hand, right? Because that's what everybody else struggles with. That's not what I struggle with. And so as Jesus begins to address the crowd, I, I, I hear him addressing us as well. I hear him addressing me as well, saying, hey, wake up. I want to awaken your heart to see something you didn't formerly see. And then he says, be on your guard against all covetousness. That's the idea of having a greedy desire for more. It could be more of anything, right? It could be more money. That's what we most naturally think of. Uh, it could also be more relationships. Uh, it could be more children. It could be more responsibility. Any greedy desire, anything in your mind that says, I need more of this to be happy, whatever it is. More money, more relationships, more golf clubs, more hobby time, more whatever. It, fill in the blank. Anything that, that you've convinced yourself of, I'll be happy if I can just have more, that's the idea of greediness here. So let's don't just equate it to money. And Jesus said, hey, wake up and be on guard against that. 
Now, why would Jesus bring that kind of warning to us? The obvious answer, because we're prone to fall asleep, spiritually speaking, right, and gravitate towards this idea. There's a good chance there's a a pocket of greed in your life today, and you don't even realize it. You've convinced yourself, I'll be happy if I can have more of whatever it is, better attitude from my wife, right? Fill in the blank. If I can have more of this, I will be happy. And Jesus says, wake up. Now, here's the most important thing that Jesus is going to say. He makes a statement. He says this, for one's life does not consist. Now, that's an interesting word. In the Greek language, it's actually the be verb, amy. That's the Greek word for to be. And so you could actually translate it exist, okay? Life does not exist or consist in the what? The accumulation or the abundance of a bunch of stuff. And what is he saying to the crowd? I see you. I see your hearts. I see the greed. And here's how that greed is playing out. You're convinced that happiness will come. Life will be found in the abundance of stuff. So essentially, Jesus could have said this. Hey, raise your hand if you want to make more money next year. Who in here wants to make more money? Oh, look at that. Now, there's nothing evil about money. Money is an inanimate object. There's nothing evil about being blessed with wealth. That's not at all what we're getting at here today. But what Jesus is talking about is if you raise your hand thinking that, you'll be happier with more money next year. You've bought into a lie. True life does not consist, it doesn't exist, it's not found in the abundance of stuff. Now, here's why that's so important to us. If you go to the Gospel of John, the first four verses in the Gospel of John, John introduces us to Jesus with some really important wording. Listen to how John introduces us to Jesus. John says this, in the beginning, he's talking about creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, later on, he's going to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus here. So he's introducing Jesus to us, and he's saying, hey, Jesus was in the beginning. He was with God, and he was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. What does that have to do with this guy and his inheritance issue? Look at what John says next. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John's saying, hey, this Jesus that I'm going to introduce you to, every molecule in the universe was created through him. There's no molecule, right? There's no, there's, there's no force out there. There's nothing about this, this universe that exists that is outside of the authority of Jesus. It was all created through him. But more importantly, look at what he says. In him was what? Life. And the life was the light of men. So not only is he saying that the molecules that make up my body, all the different fibers and different elements of my body, the bone, the muscle, the tissue, all that was created through Jesus' master plan. But just creating those tissues and putting those cells together doesn't make something alive, does it? Even more importantly, what John is saying, hey, that life that you have inside of you, Jesus put that inside of you. Right? He's the author of life, the chief architect of our universe. Now, why is that important with what Jesus is saying to this crowd of people? 
because he makes a really important statement when he says, life is not found, it does not exist in the abundance of possessions. He's speaking as an ultimate authority on where life actually comes from. So th- think of the difference of, in this way, maybe. So you're driving down the road, and your check engine light comes on, and so you pull into a jiffy loop, okay? And so they're going to hook you up to a machine. They're going to make the best educated guess they can on what's wrong with your car based on what this computer printout says. Okay, the difference between that and instead of going to Jiffy Lube, you, you just happen to know the person who designed your engine, the chief engineer of your engine. Rather than that, you just take your car over to his house or her house and say, hey, would you look at my car? The person who actually designed your engine, who has the torque of every bolt memorized, the, the compression pressure of your cylinders, the firing order, he knows it all intimately. He doesn't even have to look at the diagram, and he knows. Okay, so this is the chief engineer of your life saying, you will not find life in the abundance of possessions. This is not just good counsel. This is not Jesus trying to make your life better. He's very compassionately saying to the crowd of people, desperately pleading with them, you will not find life in more. I design life. I can tell you, it doesn't work that way. I've got a manual, you can read it, or you can listen to my words. Life does not work that way. Life cannot, it will not be found in the abundance of his possessions. Now, every person in this room knows that already, whether we're willing to admit it or not. I don't know where you are in your life, in your career, in your finances, and you may be up right now, you may be down, but there's a good chance you've got more right now than you had 10 years ago. Right? So you know this. Now, we're not so readily willing to admit it, are we? Because we still all want to make more money next year. Right? Hoping and thinking, that'll make things a little bit better. I'll be a little bit happier, a little bit more secure. And so what Jesus does next is he lays out a parable to illustrate what he's teaching. Let's look at this together. In verse 16, we read this, that he told them a parable saying... The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So when Jesus teaches a a parable, the parable is meant to reinforce a truth. And the truth is life is not found in the abundance of possessions. So he lays out this story, a parable about a man who was blessed with a a crop that was so bountiful that he didn't have room to store it. So he had too much, more than he needed. So so he begins to ask himself, what am I going to do? Now, for the Christ follower, this is that place in our life where we've been blessed with more than what we need, and we go to God and we say, God, what would you have me do with this? Where would you have me give this or put this, or how can I bless somebody with this? So he asked the question, what am I going to do? Verse 18, and he said, ha, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The problem He was blessed with more than he needed. His solution, I'll build bigger barns. But more importantly is the reason why. See, the the word here was ample. 
sufficient, enough. I'll build bigger barns, store up all this excess, excess, so finally I'll have what? Enough to be what? Satisfied. I'll say to myself, relax, take it, take it easy, eat, drink, and what? Be merry. And he makes this mistake by connecting the condition of his soul to the abundance of possessions. Did you see that? He's not saying this to his children or to his spouse or to his neighbors. Hey, relax, we've got enough. He's saying to his soul, be at peace. You've finally made it. You've accumulated enough. Relax, soul. Eat, soul. Be merry, soul, for you have finally arrived. Now, this idol of possessions in our day and time plays out in two specific ways. I want to lay it out there lest the the majority of us miss it, okay? There's the obvious version. A person who has been blessed financially, um, they're potentially really good with their money, they store up, they save, they invest, and if not careful, right, those aren't bad things, but if you begin to look for satisfaction for your soul in those things, now those things have become an idol, and so for you, potentially, you bought into the lie that to be happy, I've got to store up more, and so you're storing right now. You're accumulating. You've got this target, this goal, and you've convinced yourself, once I reach this goal, I'll breathe easy. Okay, but statistics would say that's not the vast majority of us in this room. The vast majority of us, the problem isn't that we don't have room to store it all. We've convinced ourselves we don't have enough. And so it plays out not in the accumulation of wealth, but in the accumulation of debt. And so the more that the Lord blesses us, the more we are convinced we got to spend it, right, to be happy. And so it plays out not in bigger barns, bigger bank accounts, but in bigger cars, bigger houses, better clothes, better restaurants, better neighborhoods, better schools. And so, and and listen, these aren't bad things, are they? But when we go to those things thinking they're going to make us happy and satisfy our soul, that's when those things become idols. And so this idol possessions could could play out in the, in the accumulation of wealth or the accumulation of debt, both of which driven by hearts that are idolizing possessions or wealth. Now, God's going to respond now to the man in the parable. Verse 20. Please don't miss these words. But God said to him, fool. This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, when we hear God calling this man a fool, And then we begin to realize, oh, wait a second, I operate like that as well. What we need to hear is is the voice of a compassionate God. God's not making fun of you. God's not heaping up condemnation on you. What he's saying is, this is foolish. Why wouldn't you come to the architect of life to find real life? It's foolish to pursue life in anything else. Right? So if, if that's you, God's saying, hey, it's foolish, it's dumb, it's stupid, it's ignorant to pursue life in anything other than me. You fool. I got a question for you. Suppose you make more money next year and then your soul is required of you on December the 31st. Whose money will that be? 
my spouses, my kids? That's actually the heart of the question asked Jesus about inheritance, right? Somebody else's accumulation of wealth, and now you got people fighting over it. Jesus, tell them to split it with me, right? And so you feel, the, you feel God kind of awakening our souls, right? Who's, whose stuff will your stuff be? Hence the 21st century solution of the garage sale. That's what we do with our junk. Everything that we have in our garage sale, at one point or another, we were convinced we had to have it. Right? How many of our closets are full of clothes that we had to have that we no longer wear? We had to have it. Right? Your stuff won't always be your stuff. And what, what Jesus is saying is like, hey, when you get to that point where you die, whose stuff will it be? And all of a sudden, our eyes are open. Whoa. That was foolish to look for life in those things, right? Your stuff, your hobbies, your golf clubs, your clothes, your shopping habits. All the stuff we accumulate today that we have to have becomes tomorrow's garage sale items. Sold for pennies on the dollar wine, just so we can get rid of it and clear our conscience. Went to a better home. And this is what God is saying to the man, you fool, tonight, you don't even get a chance to start tearing down your little barns to build bigger barns. You're still drawing out your plans for your bigger barns on a piece of paper. You haven't even hammered a, a nail into a board on your bigger barns, and your soul will be required of you. And then, whose stuff will your stuff be? Oh. And then there's an awakening. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's talk about what it means to be rich towards God for a moment. So how do I do that? How do I become rich towards God or wealthy in God's eyes? Do I do that by like really awesome church attendance? Does that like put me in like cha-ching, cha-ching, good position with God? He looks at my attendance. He's like, Jason, you only, you did, you've only missed one Sunday in the last three years. You're rich towards me. Does it come from fill in the blank? How much money I give to the church or I give away to the poor? Does that make me wealthy in God's eyes? It's not at all what he's getting at here. Here's here's how I would explain what it means to be rich towards God. To be so immensely satisfied in God alone that you're filled with so much joy and satisfaction that you naturally begin to loosen your grip on earthly possessions. Now, you go read the New Testament, the book of Acts. We see this play out over and over again. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter preaches. There's like 3,000 people hear the gospel, and they respond by faith in Jesus. They're baptized, and then read verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. They were filled with wonder and awe of all the miracles being done through the apostles. And guess how that played out functionally in their lives? And they began to sell their possessions one by one and give to anyone who had need. And nobody thought of their own possessions as their own. Why did they do that? Why was that their natural reaction to the gospel? We jump down to verse 32 through 34, we see... Jesus reminds us in verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
for all those believers in the book of Acts there in Jerusalem who just all of a sudden were like, hey, I don't need all this junk anymore. I've got something better. What was it that they had? They had the kingdom. Christ's follower, that's true today. That's true today. You have the kingdom. You're not, you're not a second-rate citizen in God's kingdom, right? He's not preparing a ghetto for you to hang out in in heaven. You're an heir of the kingdom of God. You are. You've been given something that, that will last past when you die, right? You, you feel the contrast here? Jesus is saying, and how foolish is it for us to get our hopes up on these little kingdoms that we're building here on earth? They're like sandcastles, right? Just one good wave comes by and the whole thing is gone. Lose your job, terminal illness, bankruptcy, right? and it's not yours anymore. And this kingdom you built out of sand is gone. But let's keep in mind, God isn't broken. He's not after your money. This is not about money. It's about your satisfaction. What he's saying is like, be satisfied in your eternal kingdom. It's your father's good pleasure to give you something that will last. Look at what he says. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches or moth destroys. Essentially, he's saying, don't put your hope in things that are going to end up in a garage sale. Things that are going to be treasures today and run down junk tomorrow. Why? Because where your treasure is, there what? Your heart will be also. Listen, church, this is not a money issue or a possessions issue. This is a heart issue. That's what Jesus is exposing and awakening us to. It's not about how much money you make. Let me just make that point because there's the chance that some of us maybe are struggling to get by financially, so we feel like this isn't my problem. Listen, the guy who struggles with with the idle possessions at $300,000 struggles with it at $30,000 a year. It's not about the amount of money. It's about not being satisfied, right, and not about being content in what God has provided for you and knowing when you've got enough and then asking God, what would you have me do with the rest? It's not a money issue. God's not broke, by the way. If that's one of your struggles with church, the church is always asking me for money. They need my money. Hey, we, God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart. That's what Jesus is compassionately after here. He's not trying to raise money here. It's not a fundraiser. He's, he's inviting people into salvation. He's saying, I don't want your money. I want your heart. I'm trying to save you from something. Mainly yourself. Mainly yourself. I am trying to save you. I think this is why so many of us get so uncomfortable and even a little bit defensive when people start talking about money around us, especially in the church, me me included. I mean, why else would we get so defensive? It's just math and dollars, right? It's not anything that should be making us get angry, yet sometimes we'll get protective, won't we? We'll get defensive. Why? Because there's a heart issue. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's foolish to let our lives be manipulated or controlled by money. That's foolish. It's foolish to let money destroy your marriage or diminish your joy or your peace. Jesus isn't trying to get your money. He's got an eternal kingdom at his command. Jesus is after your heart. Out of his love for you, he's trying to save you from you and give you what you're actually chasing after. 
real life, real satisfaction, real joy, real purpose, real meaning, real peace for your soul. And we're going we're gonna to end today for the last time. Uh, the way we've been ending the sermons, if you haven't been here, is um, at, the, at the risk of sounding like Jeff Foxworthy, right? You might have an idol of possessions if. Here's your sign. Some questions that I want to encourage you to think about today. These are questions to ask yourself when diagnosing the idol of possessions. Keep in mind, this idol can show up with the accumulation of wealth or the accumulation of debt. This is not a perfect science. Just because you say yes to all these questions is not me saying you have any idols at all. It's just a way for us to begin to ask some questions and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and speak to us this morning. And so I want to read some questions here. I've got 10 of them uh, for you to think about contemplating whether or not in some form or fashion possessions has become an idol for you. First thing is this. You might have an idol of possessions if money causes fights between you and your spouse. Think about that. If I let money cause division between me and my wife, Hallie, in any form, whether it's an argument or I treat her poorly, say some things I shouldn't say, I'm mean to her, what, what's happening in that moment in my heart is that that money is more important than she is. I don't want to admit that, but when I allow the money to cause a fight, the money has become too important, right? So if money causes fights between you and your spouse, potentially there's an idol of possessions there. If you carry over on a consistent basis high-interest credit card debt from month to month and you're never chipping away of it, you're never making progress, right? it either just continues to accumulate or stay the same, potentially, potentially there's an idol of possessions there and maybe you're attempting to live off of more than you make. And you've bought into this idea, I've got to have this to be happy, so I'm willing to go into debt and you slide the card to get it. And then you go home and you're just as dissatisfied as you were before you bought it, right? Um, it, or if you don't keep track of your monthly spending because you don't like feeling guilty, so that, that statement comes in and you just slide it right into the trash. Okay, it can be very revealing, can't it, to go through your bank statement. It reveals so much about our hearts and where our priorities are and the things that we go to for satisfaction. Maybe, maybe that's you, I don't know. Um, you might have an idol of possessions if you're having a rough day. We all have rough days. But if you're having a rough day and your remedy in your mind is to go shopping or to go eat somewhere really nice. And that's your remedy. You think that'll bring peace to my soul if I, if I do that. Potentially there could be an idol of possessions there. Or if your kids are unhappy with you, and your remedy is to go buy them something. Parents, buying things for your kids has never changed a child's heart ever. It, it could potentially buy you momentary peace when you're at the, at the store. It could. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> for about 13 minutes, the crying, desperate, i got to have this child, can appear to be satisfied. And they'll make all kinds of promises in that moment that they won't keep. I'll clean my room. I'll mow the grass. I promise, you won't even have to ask me. Yeah, right. right. Those promises are fleeting. They're gone. Why? Because that whatever you bought for them actually didn't satisfy them. And you didn't buy peace. You bought momentary relief that's going to come back to bite you. You cannot buy your children's hearts. 
You can't buy their hearts into salvation. You can't buy them into liking you. Just saying, if that's your first reaction when your kids are unhappy, is to go buy them something. Potentially, there could be an idol of possessions in your heart or their heart or both. If you tell yourself that you will be happy once you have X number of dollars in the savings account or in investments, okay? So if you've got that target in your mind, maybe you set it up, your financial advisor set it up, that's not a bad thing, right? Stewardship's a good thing. However, if you've convinced yourself, like the guy in, the, in this story, in the parable, that I'll be satisfied once I achieve this level or this dollar amount, I'm just going to say you've potentially bought into the idol of possessions. It's not actually going to deliver. When you get there, guess what? You're going you're to set a new one because you're going to go, well, I'm not happy, so I must have set the bar too low, and you're going to raise it and try to go after more. How about this one? If you feel like God is super proud of you, for the way you handle your finances or your generosity. You see how this can play out in so many different ways? If you've convinced yourself that you're on God's A-team because you're not like all those other people and you actually steward your financials well and you think somehow that's bought you extra favor with God and that's why he blesses you because he's so proud of you because you're so generous, like potentially, right, there could be an idol there. Why? You can't impress God. Your earthly dollars, dollars that are made out of paper that will deteriorate and go away, they don't mean anything to God. He has an eternal kingdom of things that don't perish, right? Your new car, your time volunteering, your giving to the poor, those things don't impress God, okay? Do those things. Those are good things to do, but don't do them thinking that you're earning God's favor. And he's just like, oh, I'm super proud of you. Whoa, I wish the rest of the church could. Everybody come look at so-and-so. Look at how he's handling his finances. Be like him. Okay, sorry. But if that's you in your mind, maybe you've made an idol out of possessions. Um, how about this one? Um, if you desire to be more generous with your money, but you feel like the only way you can do that is to make more money. Potentially, right? I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you're dead broke at 30,000, you'll be dead broke at 300,000. The reason you're dead broke for most of us is there's a heart issue here, right? It's not a dollar sign issue. It's, it's a heart issue. This next one, I don't even want to read it out loud because it convicts me, um, but I'm going to do it. If you conform your desire to give, you conform it to your budget rather than conforming your budget to your desire to give. Right? I mean, how, many, how many times have we said, I wish I, could, I really want to give more, but I have to conform my desire to give to my budget rather than taking a step back and looking at the budget and saying, well, how can I conform this budget so that I can fulfill this desire to give? I mean, how many times have you encountered somebody who needed something? You thought, man, I wish I could help out here. Gosh, I wish we had an extra car. Gosh, I wish we had an extra $100 we could help out here. And, and that, that desire to be generous is a, is a, is a Christ-like quality. It's a good thing. But if we're not careful, we'll conform our desire to give to our budget rather than conforming our budget to our desire to give. And then lastly, if, you, if giving to the church or to the poor or to people in need is a burden to you and not a joy, it might be an idol of possessions there. It's keeping you from finding joy and giving to others. Now, the, the, this is not an exact science. It's not a way to, a surefire way, but it's some questions to get us thinking, isn't it? 
a way for us to evaluate our lives and to think about this parable of, of this guy who thought that possessions or abundance was going to give him life and bring peace to his soul. And Jesus would say to us today, that's foolish. Not because he wants to be mean to you, but because he loves you. And he's saying, my child, that is foolish. Why not come to the architect of the engine, the architect of life, the one through which everything was made, and and ask me how to find life? And I'll tell you, it's found in me and me alone. And many of you here today, you're Christians and you know that. You hear that and you go, that's right. Some of you here today may have not come to that place in your journey where you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone. This is what it means to be saved. To get to that place in your life, whether you're six years old or 60 years old or anywhere in between or anywhere above or below, where you realize, you know what? I've been trying to bring satisfaction to my life and I can't, I can't attain it. I've been trying to find meaning and purpose in things and positions and people and, and every time it's a dead end. And I've been taking a step back and then taking another route and it leads to another dead end. Maybe today is a day you quit pursuing real life and stuff here on earth and you come to Christ and you surrender to him and say, listen, I'm, I'm done. I'm done trying to make myself happy. I'm dr- done trying to satisfy myself. I'm done. I want the real life that can only come from you. And that can only come from faith in Jesus. What do I have to get? What do I have to do to get that? You, you, you have to trust him. When he says that I and I alone can make you happy, you trust that. When he says that I died on the cross for your sins and resurrected from the grave to give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you have to trust that. When the Bible says if you'll confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, you have to trust that. That's what you do. You trust the promises that God has made to you. So I want to end today by praying for us and and invite our worship team to come on down. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to be at the front and at the back of the room. If you've come in today or somewhere along the way, God stirred something in your heart and you want somebody to pray with you like right now before you leave, our prayer partners are here and they would be honored to pray with you, spend time talking with you. If you're here today and and you're not a Christian and you want somebody to talk with about that, they would be honored to talk with you about becoming a Christian and to pray with you. So I encourage you when we sing, grab one of our prayer partners. If you just want to stay seated today, I just want you to know, like, feel free to do that if you're just wrestling with some things or praying through some things. Maybe you and a, a friend or you and a spouse want to go into one of the prayer rooms and, and pray. You want to come down to the front and kneel. Uh, you're free to do those things, okay? I'm going to ask that God would move. His Holy Spirit would guide us now as we respond. Let's pray. Um, gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you love us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you for this word from Jesus that reminds us that you and you alone are the only source of true life. Thank you for awakening our hearts to that this morning, God. Thank you for opening our eyes to see that once again this morning. God, that we could be refreshed with your amazing grace. God, would you now guide us as we respond. Would you send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to stir us and convict us and guide us. Father, we turn this time over to you now in the name of Jesus.